This is one of those most difficult topics that ever gets talked about in church. There's reasons why every pastor avoids it. It just seems to be the last thing that anybody wants to preach on or teach on. But the reality of it is probably one of the most destructive elements within the American culture and probably around the world. As we look at this difficult topic, as it's come up in the sequence of as Jesus walks and what he's teaching about as he walks, we come to this difficult passage in Matthew 19 about divorce. I'm going to share some things tonight that some of you have heard. This is one of those where I have to ask you to keep your ears open the entire way through the conversation. There are things that I will say in this that seem abrupt and harsh. And if you don't let me get to the next statement quickly, if you stop right there, that's what you're going to feel. If I were sitting here, and this was a conference to teach you, to talk about this, my hope would be absolutely that you could walk away from this, not only being able to use some of this for yourself if it's needed, but able to take a few things away from this to talk to people who are in the middle of divorce or who are divorced or still struggling with this question. Because I don't know of a topic that's affecting the culture more that needs specific healing and instruction than this topic. When you see the statistics outside the church and inside the church, the divorce rate is 60 plus percent. On first marriages, second marriages, it gets worse. Third marriages, it gets worse. So families that can go untouched by it are rare. When I look across this group, and say, okay, who has not been affected by divorce by a brother, a sister, a mom or dad, a child, there would be very few, if any, who would ever be able to raise their hand that that says, I have gone untouched by this question. Pastors avoid it because it can be controversial. It has had a hard time finding its way through truth within the New Testament church. This is according to what I can understand, what God has shown me, I, I share with you the truth. Because I want you to get it. Because I want you to be able to live with truth and understanding and not the deception and the brokenness that it often brings. So verse 3, Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 3, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So that was the basic question. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife For any reason. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So he goes back to the place of origin, the place where we have to teach marriage. Because if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the pattern of what he established back there will not and has not changed. We might have amended it, we might have adjusted it in God's heart, it didn't change. So Jesus immediately goes back and says, do you remember when God made male and female? Do you remember when he took Adam, who was both male and female, According to the scripture, and I can show you where it says it, and the very fact that it says in Genesis chapter 3, when she was being named, it says she was named that because she was taken out of Adam. So we know where did she originate? She originated in him. But here was the question. 
If the image of God was in Adam, if he was made in the image of God, and now there is a man and a woman, male and female, in two different bodies, where is the image of God now? If all the image was in Adam, now there's two beings, where is the image now? How did he sew it back together? And the answer is in marriage. So he's saying, what I did when I established marriage was to reestablish my image. So you can begin from this very profound place within God's heart to say, if this is the means by which I created my image again, guess how hard I'm going to protect it. Guess how determined I am that this is maintained and the structure of what I've established to reestablish my image is going to carry great weight. The Bible begins with the wedding. It ends with the wedding in the last chapter of Revelation. And everything in between is about bridal preparation. It's about knowing how to be what God has established us to be in relationship to him. So this is a huge topic, and that's where Jesus goes. He says, remember, I separated them, but then I put them back together so that they would be one, so that they would function as one. And then he asks in verse 6, Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. He's saying if God has established this union, if God has established this connection, let no man take it apart. That has serious reality to it. That is profound and deep. It's expressive of the heart of God. And he's establishing this. So any standard that we look at, about marriage has to be held against that standard. That is the standard. Hold everything against that. So they come back in verse 7. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Immediately they come back and say, Well, I'm going to use this truth against you. They say to Jesus, Well, you know, back in the Old Testament, Moses was handing out these bills of divorcement to these women answer that. What was actually occurring back there, the Jewish men finding the foreign women more attractive than the Jewish women that were around them wanted to marry these women, but they couldn't. They were already married. So they would send their wives out into the wilderness waiting on the report that they had died. Basically, they couldn't kill them, but they'd expose them to the elements waiting for the message to come back that your wife has now died, they then would remarry one of these pagan women. So Moses began to give them these divorces to save these women's lives. So that was the justification. That was the rationale for what he was doing. And Jesus responds, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, because of what you as men were doing, what you as religious leaders were doing, suffered you to put away your wives But from the beginning, it was not so. Listen to that again. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives by these divorces rather than kill them. But from the beginning, it wasn't this way. So he's saying you cannot use that as rationalization for this because that is not the standard that God has established. Yes, Moses did it. And yes, Moses might have done it even under the permission of God, but that is not God's design. That is not God's standard, and you can't hold anything up against Moses because that was something that was done simply because of the hardness of men's heart and to save these women's lives. That's not the standard that you get to use as they were trying to do. Verse 9, And I say unto you, 
Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marries her which is put away, does commit adultery. And boy, the weight just drops. You feel the full force of this question on that statement. But there's powerful uniqueness in it. Because it says very easily, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. Prior to the early 1960s, there was one Bible very dominantly used within the church. And that was the King James Version. In the early 60s, there was a huge rise of other versions. When you go to other versions, the word fornication is changed. Simply because it seems impossible. Because fornication is typically describing what? Sex between two unmarried people. But it's clearly saying here that the only reason that they're giving for putting a wife away is fornication. It's setting up such a contrast. How can that be? If fornication is between people who are not married, how could fornication be the reason for separation in the cases of marriage? Seems to be this disconnect. So, and I don't know what version you're reading, but more than likely, that word is not there. You might find marital unfaithfulness. You might find adultery. There's a lot of different words that are placed in there. And what happens when that came out, when there was such a rise of these other Bibles, the divorce rate in the Christian world jumped to match the secular world. Because suddenly there was a rationale that says, my wife is doing this, my husband is doing this, or my husband is looking at this. If he's cheating in his mind, then he's cheating, and I've got a basis for divorce. And Jesus said, no, one reason, fornication, no exception. So how could that be? When an agreement was made between two fathers that this wedding was going to occur, the minimum time between the engagement period and the betrothal period, the length of that minimum was nine months for assurance that she wasn't pregnant before this agreement was made. So nine months, that was the minimum. If there was unfaithfulness in the betrothal period between a couple that had not consummated the marriage, that would be fornication. And for that, there could be a divorce written because the marriage had never been consummated. So it is fornication. That's When you look in the Greek, that's the word that's there. And that's what Jesus was talking about. So he created this very, very narrow window saying if it happens in the engagement period, yes. After that engagement period, after the marriage is consummated, there is no reason. The different versions of the Bible, when it said adultery or marital unfaithfulness, created a huge highway of rationalization, of justification for within the church, yes, I can, because this is what's going on between us, husband and wife. And it's been very unfortunate that that has occurred because I'm not really in a place to want to argue with these letters that are written in red and what Jesus specifically has said about this topic. So here's this problem with it, this question of committing adultery. If they're divorced, why is it adultery? Because which man can separate two spirits? What God has joined together, what man can take apart? And my supposition is none. So the adultery comes because of this perspective of God that the world has largely lost. But it doesn't change the perspective of God. So here's the difficult part. He's saying, if I have created a standard, and I would tell you this, I don't care what topic you pick. 
I don't want to create uniqueness around marriage. I would tell you whatever design we put on the wall about what God has established. For example, God has set a a standard up there that says no one comes to me except by Jesus. No one comes to me but by faith. No one comes to me but by believing and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is something up there that is absolutely true. If I teach anything else outside of that standard, what do we call it? If I live outside of that standard, what does God call it? Don't be bashful. What does he call it? It's sin. So if I hold up a relationship that doesn't match the standard that God established, that he's never backed away from, if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, what do I have to call divorce? It's sin. So what's the point? Why would I want to drag you into a conversation where we have to roll divorce into this category of sin? Because I know what to do with sin. Because I know what to tell you about sin. If I don't bring marriage or divorce into this category and talk to you about what God does with sin and how he sets you free from sin... If I don't teach that and somehow appease this topic of divorce, I'll leave you in brokenness to carry that brokenness into your next relationship. Why in the world as a pastor would I want to do that? Because if I can ever get the reality from the teaching that divorce is sin, what will God do with sin? What has God done with sin? Forgiven it. He's brought the covering of his, the blood of his son over the top of it. And Paul said, does that give us permission to sin? And then he says, God forbid realizing what it cost Jesus, what it cost the Father to put that blood over our sin. Does he give us permission to just do and then redo and then redo and then redo? Absolutely not. We can't use that as as an explanation for any sin of our life. But I want to tell you, if you're going to step into a next relationship, I would love for you to be able to step into that new relationship under the grace of forgiven sin. Because then you can actually step in and not have to carry the brokenness from the last one into this one because there was no mechanism to set you free. Failing to talk about it, failing to address it with seriousness and weight and and reality is what happens to any of us in any category when sin goes unattended. What will sin unattended always do? It will absolutely cause deterioration, corrosion, brokenness, and that's an every time, no matter what category you're in. So I don't try to bring uniqueness to make divorce greater in any category, except to simply bring it into the category of sin so that it can be dealt with like any other sin. And so that you can actually enter in and live in the peace and the goodness and the excitement and the anticipation of the relationship that you're in, having been able to set that old baggage down outside thrown away, taken away, so that you can actually step into a relationship and not have to deal with the baggage of the brokenness under your feet and be able to live in this new relationship, establishing something with this person that is absolutely whole and understanding, I can't do this again. I can't enter into this again because of what, if I just use God and give me permission to do it and to do it and to do it, then, then we're doing what Paul absolutely said, cannot be done. God forbid that we would ever use God against himself in the explanation or justification of our behavior. So there's one other piece of this on a practical basis that I want you to hear, and I want to tell you, I believe this is godly. I even believe that it is scriptural. 
but I'm going to share it as Randy's opinion and not from the scripture. I have found myself lately doing a lot of marital counseling. For the first four or five years, I didn't do hardly any, and so much of what I do now is dealing with difficult and challenging marriages. And sadly, they still end in divorce. It still happens. I don't try to own the success or the failure of any kind of counseling. Sometimes the brokenness is so severe, the situation so dire, it's the answer. But I would tell you, in everything that you hear me say, especially to a spouse that was in a situation that was so heavy, so hard, so destructive, that you still need to be able, whether you're the one who has to step into that place and bring the divorce about, or you're the one who that is acted upon, I would tell you that you specifically need to know when God released you. Because I don't know how to get someone past regret, past this, maybe I should have stayed longer, maybe I should have tried harder, maybe there was something else that could have been done, how to stop all that self-evaluation that is so critical and so damaging within ourself, that tears at our hearts with such aggressiveness. I don't know how to remove that unless you can say, at this moment, God released me. We were coming back from Max's dad's funeral, and this was the topic between Danny and Shorty and I. And Danny began to share the specific moment and how it even broke his heart when he was released. It wasn't even something that he had, from the best I remember, that he was actually pursuing it, but he knew that he could tell you where he was on the highway, the time of day it was, everything that had transpired around that moment when God released him. So what does that do for him? What does that release do? It allows him to move forward. It allows him to be able to have his heart open again. And thank goodness it was, because how long from there till Amy? Two weeks. It changes everything. I have a friend who was the recipient of a divorce decree, didn't want it. In talking to him, I said, you'll know the exact moment when God releases you from this commitment. I said, it will very likely come when she remarries. I said, that's when I would tell you, first and foremost, the most likely when it will come. I saw him probably a year and a half, maybe even two years, after his wife had remarried, and I asked him, when did you receive the release? And he said, well, it was about two months ago. So even after she had remarried, he wasn't released. To me, that's one of those things that I share with you as Randy's opinion. I think this is what was actually happening with Moses. I think God was allowing their release. Because of the damaging nature of what was going on, I believe God allowed Moses to give this release so that these women's lives would be saved. I don't believe Moses would have done it had God not released him. Does it set up a conflict? Not in my heart. Because it allows me or gives me some degree of permission within the conversation, even though I will say that this is more my understanding than I would point to the Scripture and say specifically, here it is. But for me, the reality is that God, and I've watched it happen. I've watched couples. I've watched individuals receive this release. If you're, if you're going to be able to live without that heaviness, the regret, the wondering if something else could have been done, if I'd have stayed another week, if I'd have stayed another year, what did God have in store? What was around the corner? No, you can't. There's only one way to, to remove that from you, and that's just to be able to say, I know the moment 
specifically where I was, what was going on in my life when God released me. I share that with you because I would really encourage you, when you're dealing with people who are struggling with this question of divorce, the leading counsel that I give, be as certain as you can within the release that God gives you. I don't have to evaluate the situation and give an opinion about yes or no, or is your situation that bad or whatever. I can listen and I can encourage, and if God gives me wisdom, I can speak to it and and try to help. But the greatest thing I can offer is if you can do it, under the release of God, you will be free. Is it setting God up for this strange contest of, of his will of one thing against another? No more than what was going on here in this passage. Because I don't believe for a second God wants anyone to live in the bondage. I don't think that is his desire at all. If we don't put divorce into this category and explain it in truth, then I can't come right behind it and say, but we know what to do with sin. He tells us in First John, Bring any unrighteousness to me, and what will he do? He'll wash it. He'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If we tell the truth about it, I can also tell the truth of how you recover, how you heal, how God puts you back and restores you and washes you clean. Man, that needs to be told. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this teaching. It's not easy, but Lord, it comes with, again, with great profundity, great wisdom, great attention because you have explained well what your will was what your design is and you love to bless within your design you release within that design so i know lord that you have prepared us you have you've created the means by which hearts can be clean sin can be forgiven in all categories not just this one in all categories you have established that unrighteousness can be taken away because of your ability, willingness to wash us clean when we come before you. It's my desire that we all, in all categories, would learn how to live under the grace of forgiven sin so that we can all be free in all categories and live as you have instructed us and taught us and prepared us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.